This is the Transit Matters Podcast. Today is the 16th of May, 2016. Uh, Transit Matters advocates for fast, frequent, reliable, and effective public transit in and around Boston. As part of our vision to repair, upgrade, and expand the MBTA, we work to change the conversation around transit issues through informed planning and critical analysis. I'm Mark Ibunya, and I, cha- I manage our communications and social media here. By day, I'm an IT systems administrator, and by night, I'm the Leslie Nope of transit geeking out over transit celebs, governance, policy, and civic engagement. Hi, I'm Josh Fairchild. I'm a board member here at Transit Matters. I work as an attorney, but in my free time, I like to indulge my passion for improving communities through better development and infrastructure, specifically with regards to transit and transportation networks. Hey, and this is Scott Mullen. I'm the radio engineer here for the Transit Matters podcast. I have uh, spent many years on the operational end of transportation, both in bike share and in car sharing. I am uh, a charter board member of the Livable Streets Alliance, and I like to uh, think that I help people think outside the car. And we, we're trying something. We're continuing with this this uh, pilot here of Facebook Live. So um, we're live streaming this right now. By the time you hear this, we'll have a video companion to this podcast on our Facebook page. And today on our podcast, we have a very special guest, uh, Rafael Maris, Vice President and Program Director for Healthy Communities and Environmental Justice at the Conservation Law Foundation. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Of course. Um, so I guess... Uh, yeah, yeah, so, Raphael, one of the um, things that I think I'm intrigued by is, um, you know, when I, when I first moved to Boston uh, in 2010 for law school, uh, it seemed like every article that was discussing transit um, would always quote Raphael Mares of the Conservation Law Foundation. And, you know, I wasn't immediately immersing myself in transit, but, but pretty quickly I began to learn the backstory of uh, big dig mitigation and kind of how Conservation Law Foundation became synonymous with transit and transportation projects in Boston. Um, and so, but I, but I do wonder, um, for you personally, how you, um, became a transportation, a transit advocate, knowing that you came more from a, um, environmental justice, maybe perspective. Mm -hmm. So for 10 years after I graduated from law school, I worked at the legal services center in Jamaica Plain, which is part of Harvard law school. And, um, I, uh, was a clinical instructor and I had law students and with them, we represented tenants and I focused my practice on lead poisoning, um, asthma that's triggered by housing conditions, and housing discrimination cases. And when I left the Legal Services Center and came to CLF, a big part of my docket, not my whole docket, was transportation. And it probably doesn't, uh, uh, it not difficult for you guys to understand that I fell in love with it right away and I really enjoyed transportation. It's really important from an environmental perspective. It's important from an economic perspective. It's important from a social justice perspective. And transportation law and policy really is developed as a really interesting area for me. And so I've become an expert on it, and it fit, obviously, with what I was supposed to do at CLF and its history in this area. Were there were there any major challenges as you sort of made that adjustment between um, working with people around maybe housing conditions to doing transportation? Obviously, you, you say it's something you fell in love with pretty quickly, but were there things about it that seemed foreign or difficult to understand at first? Well, I think that there are different flavors of ice cream. We have similar problems in society, and they just play out in different ways. Um, transportation obviously isn't the same as, as housing, but but you can sort of recognize the patterns quickly. Um, you, I had to learn a lot. It was a steep learning curve, and I really enjoyed that beginning time of finding out things about transportation that you wouldn't know if you're just a, 
a normal user. You know, you'd, I'd take the blue line every day. I didn't pay attention before I became a transportation expert that, you know, at airport it switches from, you know, the electricity coming from the track to uh, going to the top. And so that's something, you know, you, you, uh, those are the little tidbits of information you learn as you go along. Yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, I, I kind of came to this more from, I was always had been interested growing up in infrastructure policy. Um, and I think when I moved here, I became more and more and more interested in land use and transportation, which I feel are, are inextricable, especially when you get into more urban settings. I mean, they are everywhere, but they become more op- more more obvious as we have this much more uh, built up infrastructure. So um, it's always fascinating to hear how someone else became interested in that who didn't come from maybe wanting to go into transit originally. So uh, yeah. go ahead, Mark. Oh, um, so we we have a few prepared questions here, uh, and, and and I guess, I mean, getting getting right down to the meat of your work with CLF, and and the work that we most well we know you most well for, which is advocating for the environmental mitigation stuff that the uh, the the Commonwealth of Massachusetts agreed to do as part of their work and as part of the. Uh, the legal terms for accepting the federal uh, additional federal money that they got for the big dig. So right now, uh, the hot topic of the week, the month, the the last several years has been uh, the Green Line extension. So I, I guess let's get some background about what CLF was doing. What was was CLF doing anything with transit before before it really threw the the gauntlet as as far as that that um, the lawsuit that that it threw. To ensure that the state committed um, was state committed with with these uh, environmental mitigation, um, and uh, and then we'll, we'll we'll take it on from there. I think my best understanding is that CLF was interested in promoting public transportation as an environmental issue. Um, we had an ozone problem at the time, mm-hmm. and we still, to a certain extent, do. And um, and so CLF was interested in in improving air quality. And uh, knew that public transportation was key to that and uh, giving people other options uh, other than driving. And so at the time with the big dig, they were going to add six lanes of highway and they weren't thinking for a second what impact that was going to have on air quality. And under the Federal Clean Air Act, um, you have to be in compliance as a state with the national ambient air quality standards. And one of them was ozone and Massachusetts wasn't in compliance with that. Our region wasn't in compliance with that. And as a result, um, it provided um, a challenge. If you're already not in compliance and you're adding all this car traffic, um, you can imagine where it was going to go. And so CLF um, filed you know, a lawsuit and tried to uh, get the state to pay attention to the federal law and make sure that in addition to the big dig, there would be transit improvements put in place that would make sure that the state would be able to uh, meet the National Ambient Air Quality Standard mm-hmm. for ozone. So then... Um Bringing that to today, what um, what do you, what does CLF and what do you feel about uh, the current proposal for the Green Line extension as far as what's going on with the cuts, and does that still meet the uh, the mitigation? Um, does that does that still check the box for environmental mitigation that we agreed to? Uh, and and if not, is is CLF getting is, is CLF ready to get to the plate and 
and throw that back to the to the to the Commonwealth. So let me give you a little bit more of hi- history. So it yeah. wasn't just one time. So right. CLF had to follow up because the the Commonwealth completed some of the transit improvement projects, right. didn't complete others. And what people sometimes today don't realize is that there was a long list of projects, many of which have been completed, and mm-hmm. they make a real difference in people's lives. Um, and, and many of them were not what people call you know, or consider expansion projects. Right. There were many stations renovated, including North Station and all the Blue Line stations. Um, there were, was parking created at um, um, near commuter rail stops mm, and subway stops that make it possible for people to take public transportation. And um, so it isn't all about the projects that are left over, which obviously became the focus because the state did not complete them. And so now we're talking about them. (laughs) Um, And, you know, so when you take the blue line, for example, you might not realize that, but the vehicles are six car trains. They weren't before. They're they're new. um, So they they were put into service in in uh, in 2008. Um, and the, on all the stations, um, including now Government Center, have been renovated. And, uh, and that's as a result of, of these, uh, what we sometimes call transit commitments. Mm-hmm. Um, this brings us to the Green Line extension in part because the remaining transit commitments are the Green Line extension. And then there's one more station on the Fairmont line. And, um, and so the current um, redesign meets um, the requirements of the state implementation plan, um, but not fully because the project that was funded by New Starts, which is a federal discretionary grant that the Commonwealth um, succeeded in obtaining, um, is only till College Ave. There's an, the terminus of the Green Line is at Route 16, and the state implementation plan, which is is where the legal requirement uh, in part comes from, and the settlement were, uh, with CLF require the Green Line to be extended to Medford Hillside, which is a neighborhood of Medford, and College Ave is not right. does not quite reach that neighborhood. Right, and so um, that project is separately funded by the Boston MPO. And the biggest challenge right now is that the Boston MPO is currently in a comment period in which they are considering uh, or proposing to move the money that was set aside for that terminus uh, at Route 16 to the rest of the Green Line extension to help fund it. Right. And so the MP- the Boston MPO, just to kind of bring this full circle, so that new starts funding is that is where about that roughly $1 billion that the federal government has put towards the the Green Line extension capital cost. So that brings us up to $1 billion about. And then the Commonwealth is is ponying up some additional funding either through um, uh, either through direct revenue or, or is that bonding? It's That's, bonding, yeah. yeah. Bonding. And they, yep. the state, they have limited themselves now. The to $2 The management billion. control board and the master board have limited themselves to a total of $2 billion, right. So 996 from the federal government, the rest from the state. And um, and then um, the the most recent cost estimate um, is is just under two point three billion right. that came out of um, the review of the project and um, the cities of Somerville and Cambridge have um, are looking into and I have recommended to their respective city councils that they will put in an additional fifty and twenty five respectively for a total of seventy five right. million and then that that balance is also what the uh, Boston MPO's uh, allotted portion would be shifting to uh, from the from the portion from College Avenue, uh, what is it, College Avenue, right? Right. All the way up to uh, Route 16 right. and Medford. Okay. So my concern, when I first yeah. heard that, my my concern was, well, will that 
further terminus never happen? Will that will the line never go that far? Is that a concern that CLF has? Yeah, we we want this obviously to happen. It's a legal requirement, but in addition, it is a much better terminus for the Green Line extension. College Ave, for people who are familiar with it, is just not a great place to end the light rail. Um, Route 16 provides great opportunities for transit-oriented development. Um, it serves a number of environmental justice neighborhoods right there. Yeah. And from uh, out of all the stations on the Green Line extension, it's the station that has the biggest potential for increasing, uh, uh, reducing vehicle miles traveled, so shifting people from cars into transit. And, um, and, and that's obviously important, and we would miss that op- opportunity if the, if the full extension wasn't built. What, what is an environmental justice neighborhood? Uh, there's a state defined, and it's a percentage uh, of folks that, you know, that live in the neighborhood. It can be defined by income. It can be defined by race. It can also be defined by I- immigrant status or language ability. Um, and so, but, but the basic idea is that there are a number of neighborhoods in that area that are more likely to be transit-dependent and so are going to be great beneficiaries of that. In addition, um, because of its location, the transit-oriented development opportunities are great at, at Tufts. Um, I, I think it was the mayor of Medford who recently joked that there's potential for Tufts-oriented development. <laughs> um, but there really isn't much that can be done there anymore since it already is pretty built out. Um, right. And there are opportunities for Medford and, um, and for the Green Line at Route 16 that, that aren't available at College Ave. What um what concerns or encouragements do you have about the the recent proposal for um for the pared, the pared down green line extension? Well, I think that we can't argue with the fact that if you had nicer stations, it would have an impact on ridership. But I just don't think that in the great scheme of things, it is as important as the other items that we just discussed. So Route 16, for example, the other big concern that that CLF has is the community path. Right. Um, we're pleased that it was still included. It was seriously, um, Master seriously considered cutting it out altogether. Um, it fortunately is in the full funding grant agreement for the new starts application, so it can't be removed. And we made sure to point that out to them. Um, but what they redesigned, which we appreciate, ends and lets people out on McGrath Highway. And letting people out on a highway doesn't make a lot of sense for a p- community path. And um, if that final piece was included, you can essentially um, see people getting all the way from Concord to the Charles River. And that makes a big difference, obviously. And it also helps the Green Line by bringing uh, uh, traffic to to all the stations. Um, so we are definitely concerned about that part being missing as well. And so comparing it, you know, the community path extension and Route 16, which really changes the functionality if you don't complete those, um, versus having scaled down stations, it's just not as big of a deal uh, to us ultimately. For those for those two main um, issues, the, the the path not going right. as far as originally envisioned and the line itself not going as far. Do you have any calculations for how, you know, that, you know, affects um, car usage or, um, you know, usage of the the transit? I don't have the number in my head right now, but it's a significant number. It's a higher number for for Route 16 than it is for every other station, essentially. So it is very important from that perspective. And I don't know what the number for the community path is, but because it is such an important link, it really provides... Um, it for, provides the opportunity to, for people to commute all the way into Boston, but it also provides the opportunity for for feeding uh, passengers to the Green Line. And when you, um, when, if you're aware of sort of how this works at Davis Square and how uh, you know the path is fed, uh, usage of that station, With the, the minute the right path? Right, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think you can understand what the potential there is and and what a missed opportunity it would be. 
um, to not complete it yeah. um, as part of this. And, so, and oh, can I ask? Ahead. I got to yeah. jump in. How? Yeah. It's a really basic question. How did we get here? Because if we had commitments, we say, okay, we're going to build this highway, and we're going to do all this stuff, but we'll do that later. And then it just seems they walk it back and walk it back and walk it back, which is what you're dealing right. with every day. How do like where's the where's the meat? Where's the where's the hook that we can kind of make this happen? Well, I think that um, part of it is that what I started to say before is that a lot of the transit improvements were completed. Um, and and so the, the challenge is, you know, where are, do the political priorities lie? That has always played a role. <laughs> and then, then money always yeah. plays a role. Yeah. Um, so CLF has played its role by enforcing the legal requirements um, over this time period. Um, and the state has to play its role. Um, I, I think the previous administration has been criticized for how it's managed this project, but it's never gotten and, and some of that criticism is is maybe well deserved. But what it's not gotten its credit for is that it actually succeeded in bringing in nine hundred and ninety six million dollars in a federal grant. Mm-hmm. Um, without that, the conversation would be a completely di- different one. Even if the the cost of the project had not gone up, we would be in the same place with the yeah. state being required to spend $2 billion. And, and we were competing with many, many other projects yes. that were shovel-ready across the country. And and the reason we won is of the, because of the great work they did and because this is such a fantastic project. Um, and so that's sometimes lost. You know, mm-hmm. when you're here, you don't realize how great of a project it is compared to other projects right, around right. the country. And and when you're sitting here criticizing all the things that went wrong, and, and many did go wrong, you, you forget to, to uh, praise the previous administration right. for bringing in $996 million. And so you're sort yeah. of missing the, the big picture um, here to a certain extent. Yeah. And was that based on an original budget for the project? or was, was I'm just trying to understand how it always ends up being. Because they broke ground on the big dig when right. I was in high school, and then I think they finished it. Right. That was you know five years ago or something. But anyway, the uh, how, so that how is not a long time period. It's I not suppose. a long time period, right? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, how do these budgets just seem to to come out of nowhere? Well, we don't have the money, we can't do it. But the commitments were there. But the money's not there, then it's not really something realistic. Or, or how does this work? I guess I'm just trying to, you know, for the man on the street, like they said they do it, and now they're not doing it, or it's taking longer. I than I guess they did they contemplate how much it was going to cost when they was made the commitment? Was there any sort was of that- well, I think the cost of a project goes up when you delay it. And yes. if you go back and look at many comment letters that CLF has written over time, every time they said, we're concerned that you don't have a budget for this. We're concerned that you are not going to be able to meet your deadline. And we're concerned that delay is going to make the project more expensive. Yeah. Um, so it, it can't say that a, that part wasn't foreseeable. Um, we held a mock groundbreaking in protest when, under the previous administration, they delayed the project. Um, we wanted it to obviously be moved along. Um, here you have an additional factor where they tried out a new procurement method for which they had to get legislative authority, and, and they did. Um, that in and of itself may or may not have been a bad idea, but then they didn't implement it correctly. Right. And then you had a contractor taking advantage of the whole situation, and that's how the price went up. I don't ever believe that the project was a $3 billion project. Um, and um, I think there's a lot of outrage in the blogosphere of the, of the, the people who, who, are, who have been observing this for years. They've, they've crunched the numbers, and this is, this is by far per mile more expensive than any other, any other project of its kind anywhere else. And Although it, that does not take into consideration all the different factors right. here. So, I mean, I've seen all the newspaper articles about that 
making comparisons. I do have to caution people that it isn't the same for a number of reasons. First of all, we have a maintenance facility That's included right. here. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, second of all, we're, the advantage of the project is that it is in a densely populated area, but that also yep. increases costs. Yep. And while I've said many times that it isn't an existing right-of-way and we should be able to do this, um, there are commuter rail tracks that have to be moved yep. for this. So that makes it expensive. Um, and, and, and so I don't know if these head-to-head comparisons were really fair. Right. That said, the $3 billion was never the correct way number in the first place. in the stratosphere, yeah. Mm-hmm. This um, is kind of a crazy question, but, you know, we're talking about environment and environmental justice. You'd almost say, well, it's, you know, it's priceless, right? But how does, does the CLF put a price tag on the types of environmental mitigations that we talk about with transit? Do you, do you crunch numbers about different scenarios for mitigation or different outcomes and how that will affect the environment? Do you put price tags on this? I mean, we crunch numbers all the time. And I got to tell you, when, when the news came out that the, the cost of the project was out of control, um, and on my first day of vacation, I was talking to members of the administration and, you know, at MassDOT, MBTA, and I was talking to members of the press. Uh, we didn't say, you know, you got to do this project. It doesn't matter if it's $3 million. What we said is you got to do this project and it shouldn't cost $3 million. And you got to figure out how to do this right. Um, and so when, you know, when I first testified about this, uh, I said the same thing. We, we are not interested in you spending money that doesn't need to be spent. That could be spent on something else in the Commonwealth. That's important. Um, but the idea that you cannot complete a project that is in one of the most densely uh, populated areas of the country, probably the most densely populated area within New England, um, it, you know, and we have an existing right of way. It's a light rail project that is legally required, and you are getting $996 million from the federal government. If we can't do this transportation project, what project can we do? And I, and I say that, and the truth is th- the, they were chosen by the federal government as a partner, yeah. right? The federal government expects this project to be delivered. If we back out of this project and you are – you know, in the federal government or a successor of the current federal government, and you're considering a partner again, even if co- the Commonwealth comes to you with a uh, a good idea for a transportation project, you're going to say no, right? Because yeah. you've been embarrassed more than once now with the big dig and now uh, potentially with the Green Line extension. So the only way for the Commonwealth to recover from this is to deliver the project, deliver the whole project, and do it well this time. Um, because uh, otherwise I don't see there any potential of getting discretionary federal dollars in the future for yeah. transportation. Because I think that puts into jeopardy some of the other issues that we have with, um, and then we're, we're going to move, inch this conversation a little forward because, I mean, Green Line extension is really important, but also there are lots of other transit justice expansions that uh, that we can think of. How do we how do we move forward from here? And, and then how does CLF address the need to continue to expand strategically while also responding to state of good repair, which I know is a, uh, a hot topic for uh, for a number of folks, including uh, James Aloisi, who we invited but unfortunately couldn't be here today. So, um, and then my my question on top of that: at, at, at what at, does state of good repair then become an environmental issue if 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 people can't get around the region reliably? And uh, is is that is that something at all that we can push back and say, well? Maybe we do need to fund these these commitments for for state of good repair. If there's a will, if if there's a will, there's a way, right? Uh, the money just kind of seems to appear for for highway projects. Why not? Mm-hmm. Why not for uh, for transit? Yeah, we don't see it as competition. We are clearly for um, 
fixing the MBTA's state of good repair issue. Right. Um, as a matter of fact, in 2015, when we were first hit by, you know, the snow and the cold and the tea being shut down and I was being asked what was going on, I talked about state of good repair. I talked about the red and orange line cars being on the way and how long it will take until they get here. And CLF played a big role in making sure that there was funding available through the 2013 Transportation Finance Act and that that funding was going to be spent on the red and orange line cars. Right. Um, tracks and signals and power, all those matter significantly. And we talk about them. We just don't see them as in competition with providing the system that we need. And actually, if you go back and pay attention to what the Secretary of Transportation, Secretary Pollack, said at the beginning of her tenure, she talked about the fact that that's an artificial distinction right. and that we cannot possibly just fix the system that we currently have. I don't know when we should time it as when it was built, but if we're generous, we say maybe it was built in the 80s or something like that. We can't expect to have a system in 2030 that looks like it did 50 years ago. And that's what we're heading for if we're just focusing on state of good repair. Right. We end up with a, a system that hasn't really grown, and, and especially with the uh, the population growth that we're seeing here with uh, with a lot of developments. And, um, and the demographic shift. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, young people are not getting driver's licenses um, <coughs> in, the, in the same... Um, percentages as previous generations did, and they expect to get around in other ways. They expect to live close enough to be able to walk and bike, and they want to be able to take public transportation. Um, and if we don't, if we don't build a system for that kind of world, uh, we're going to be we're going to be way behind. But even on that note, I got to tell you, uh, the, all the focus on state of good repair right now. It sounds great that there the, there's going to be an increase in spending on the MBTs. Um, um, state of good repair, and we support that. But if you look at the capital investment plan, the draft capital investment plan is out for public was out for public comment and, until Friday. Um, if you look at that, you're going to find a couple of things. One is that there isn't enough money to replace the Green Line cars. Um, there are 65 uh, Green Line cars in active use that are from the 1980s. Um, they're they're beyond their they're going to be beyond their useful life during this time period, and they're going to have to be replaced. And all we have in there is enough money to sort of design the procurement to plan for it, but not to actually spend any money on buying them. And the MBTA buses is an even bigger problem, where you have currently 642 uh, buses that are beyond their useful life and service. Uh, by the end of the five-year period of the capital investment plan, you're going to have 908 of them uh, that are too old. Right. And uh, and in the plan, there's enough money to purchase 104 uh, buses, new ones, and overhaul 155, which means we'll be treading water. Um, and you can't tread water when you're drowning. You're going to have to do more than that. And so nice. that's the focus on state good, of good repair right now. That's not sufficient. Is 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 the commenting, CLF submitting comments? Is that is that enough? It, transit organizations submitting comments? Is that enough to point out these glaring you know oversights? Well, the last time MassDOT and the MBTA put out uh, capital investment plans, um, there was the same problem. There wasn't enough money for um, for buses in there, and yep. we pointed it out to them. We pointed it out directly first, then we pointed it out to the press. There were a number of articles that came out, and they fixed that problem, and they put them in there. Some buses have been purchased since. Obviously, we need to do more of that. Um, I'm hoping the same will happen this time. The buses are just too important to the MBTA system. But... Um, what is true is that if we don't have enough money, we're essentially just moving around a 
a blanket that is too small to cover the body. And if you pull it in one direction and then point to what you're covering, it sounds like a great success, but there will be something else that's not covered. I just think the buses are too important to, to leave out, and I think we shouldn't have a debate about that. But ultimately, um, we can't deny that we need more funding for the MBTA, but it's true for the whole transportation uh, system in Massachusetts, and right. CLF has commented on on the statewide issues not just on the mbta for the cip so it sounds like clf is is saying there's there's a a a problem with the with the formula or the way that we come about arriving at the funding level for transportation generally well i think part of the problem with a draft cip for example is that there is no need statement so they show off how much money will be spent in total and what it will be spent on to a certain extent so it's done by spending priority and then it's done by division and program, and then it's done on the project level. It's important to have all that information, but the information that's missing is if I'm a commuter on the green line, I want to know how much money goes into the green line. You can't find that out. Um, and, and, and ultimately, there is no statement about what the need is. It sounds great that the MBTA is buying 104 buses. It sounds great that they're overhauling 155 right. of them. But if you have no idea how many buses there are right. and how many of them need to be replaced during that time right. period, you have no idea how to evaluate that. Well, well, we need to do a better job in the media of saying this is only 70% of what we needed or 30% right. of what's mm-hmm. needed. Well, because the, the MBTA, or MassDOT, does list some number of projects that are that have been zombie projects, projects that are in there that they need that aren't, that aren't necessarily being funded. But th- yeah, that doesn't really talk about the whole picture of wh- what is that What is that in the context of all of your needs. Well, let me tell you about those projects. Yeah. I'm a huge fan, and, and I should give um, MassDOT and T credit of a number of things they did this time around. They combined the MBTA and MassDOT CIP, yes. and that's, that's great for people like me who have to spend a lot of time <laughs> with these documents. I'd rather have one document than, than two. They did provide um, Excel sheets uh, two Excel sheets that came with the CIP that I really appreciated. One of them uh, is a universe of projects that shows not only the projects that are in the draft CIP, but the ones that didn't make it. Right. And so if you wade through that, you can learn a lot of information. And what I learned is that we have $23.1 billion in projects that did not make it into the CIP. Then you have another 7 point something um, of funding for projects that did make it into the CIP, but but don't fund them completely. Which adds up to over thirty billion, and that list, and that's from all of MassDOT spending. It's all from Massachusetts. Okay. All of Massachusetts. Okay, all of Massachusetts. It includes MassDOT and the MBTA and mm-hmm. the regional transit authorities. A lot of projects that we talk about a lot in the press um, that you know relate to the North South Link or the Blue Line extension to Lynn or the Red Blue connector. None of them are included for construction dollars in that list that didn't make it in there. So the $30 billion is actually a low estimate. And those are also... It's not a, it's not a hopeful $30 billion. That's right. It's not of that's the things a, we should be doing. It's just what made it in the list. Yeah, I'm not judging all the projects that are in there, and I'm sure you can find <laughs> some that are not necessary, although the, to the proponents, they probably are. But I, I think it gives you an idea of what the need around the state is, which is bigger than that and definitely bigger than what we're currently funding. We have 4,500 projects in that universe of projects, and only 1,800 are being funded. So that means for every project that's in there, there are one and a half that are not being funded. And as I told you, that not all projects that, that people know about or think about are actually in there, so the number is probably higher. Yeah. Now, I know that you said uh, a couple of minutes ago you mentioned, which I was glad that you mentioned the fact that um, Secretary Pollack <coughs> had pointed out um, towards the beginning of her um, term in the administration that um, there shouldn't be a distinction between state of good repair and strategic expansions. Um, 
Do you feel like it's been um, a, a good thing for transit advocacy and the transit advocates in the Commonwealth or uh, a, a difficult thing to deal with that um, someone who was once a very prominent advocate is now in the administration and is saying things like, well, if I knew what I knew, if I knew now, if I knew what I knew now back then when I was at the CLF suing the state for some of these mitigation proposals, I wouldn't have done it. Um, is that is that a, a, a very challenging thing for us to deal with, or is that a, a good thing for us to deal with? Well, I, let me start with saying that Stephanie Pollack is, is one of the smartest people I know, um, and no doubt about that. And anybody who's ever met her, uh, and it doesn't take long, can figure that, you know, oh, yeah. you can figure that out in a heartbeat. There's no doubt about that. Um, I, I also tell people that she's currently playing a role. You know, she is the transportation secretary of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts under Governor Baker, and that's her role. And so you can't expect that everything she says is her own personal belief at all times. She has to do a job. And so you see the transition that we just talked about of what she said at the beginning of her tenure, which was already in role to a certain extent, and the fact that she doesn't bring that up anymore right now. Um, I, I like having her in that, that role um, just because I know that she's smart, but I don't uh, do what, what you know might be suggested by that, which is to just blindly follow whatever she says must be the gospel because she's playing a role and we have to do our jobs here. And, uh, and I don't agree. I agree with a lot of things this administration is doing. I like the idea of investing more in state of good repair. Um, I, I like that they didn't just spend any amount of money on the Green Line extension, but try to figure out what went wrong in the procurement and, and get that right. Um, and so I like all of that, but I don't think that's enough. Um, it's not enough to get us into the future and, and this administration's uh, refusal to accept that more revenue is needed for transportation is, is wrong. Um, asking the uh, the um, the riders who suffered the most during the winter that sort of spurred on this attention that people are giving to this issue, which uh, is useful, um, having them pay more um, before there were any really improvements on the ground that they could feel is wrong. And from a social justice perspective, obviously, that makes it hard for uh, for some people to be able to get to where they need to go. Those are just wrong decisions. The termination of late night service, it's clearly a mistake. And so just because uh, I think that um, Stephanie Pollack is excellent, um, I don't believe that all the decisions that she's making um, uh, or that the administration is making are, um, you know, are right for um, the Commonwealth or for this region or for the MBTA. Yeah, I, I agree. I've, uh, I've personally been compl- perplexed and trying to figure out, unwrap the uh, the machinations that are happening uh, because yeah I mean she as for as long as I've lived in Massachusetts was which is around the same time that you you came to CLF around 2009 uh, that's that's basic she has basically been at the forefront of these issues talking about exactly the same things and then it's and then it's been kind of this uh, this uh, role I think a role is the the best way to put it um, she is playing a role at at um, at MassDOT as the transportation secretary, and so that kind of changes the tenor and tone of, of the conversation that she has. So uh, well, I so, feel like I wouldn't want anybody else there. Yeah, you know? like yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But that that comment that I mentioned, it sort of it sort of was kind of like something your parents say, like you'll understand better when you get older or something. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. like almost to say like, well, those transit advocates, they they don't know what I know, so they don't, you know they don't have all the information. Well, I think that is that is true, and that actually makes her look bad if you go back in time, that she didn't understand that, that she had no sympathy for the people running the agency. I have a lot of sympathy for the people running the agency, and I now, now play the role that she did back then. And yeah. I, while I don't have access to all the information that she has access 
to now. I, I have enough, I had enough of a sense during this administration and and and, and um, under the previous one to understand that it is difficult what yep. they're doing. But I think there is a difference when you say this is really challenging because we don't have enough revenue, but you leave out the part that because we don't have enough revenue and you're just trying to always point to something else because you're supposed to guard that part. There right. are other challenges yes. than <laughs> revenue. I agree with that. But it's clear that we have a revenue challenge. Yeah. And a lot of what we see now is compounded by the fact that we've had a revenue challenge for a long, long time. So when you talk about the state of good repair backlog, yeah. it's not that people at the T were too lazy to fix things around the house. It's they didn't have the money to do it and they didn't. they wanted to keep service on the street, and so yeah. they kept going and deferring it and deferring it, and now we're being handed the bill. Well, so. and it also sounds even hard. It, I feel like we're now even at a. It, it makes that conversation about revenue harder and harder every single year right. because the service becomes right. worse, and right. and people are like, what's changing? We're we're putting so much money into the MBTA, how do, you know? And then I think it seems like this administration is trying to play that game where they're they're trying to rebuild trust in the T, which I understand, but at the same time, it's. They they know what the problems are and they can speak very candidly about them, um, but I, I I I think there's a there's a whole game of of of, of well uh, on, that, on that revenue yeah. issue you know we're gonna have Rich Parr on here as soon as he and I can get our schedules <laughs> squared up but um you know Mass Inc um had a with, with WBOR had an interesting poll put out um maybe now two weeks ago. Um, about how they, they interviewed people or they just put a survey out for people in the Boston area. And they split it between inner Boston and outer Boston. But the overwhelming response uh, of the respondents was that we all agree, whether we're driving commuters or transit commuters, we all agree that you know our commutes are, are bad, congestion's bad, and the way to solve it isn't necessarily highway building. The way to solve it is through the MBTA. But at the same time, the universal agreement was that we didn't necessarily want to raise revenues. <laughs> and they, they, they had a whole host of uh, potential revenue sources, and they kind of rejected all that. So they're saying, we, we, we need revenue, but we don't want to raise it. What, did, you have, did you see that, and did yeah. you have thoughts about, <laughs> about that poll? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, first of all, the public is, is right that our solution, um, when you're stuck in traffic in a car, obviously is transit you know like there's nothing better that could happen to you if you're this diehard even a person that never sets foot on public transportation and you love to drive to work the worst thing that could ever happen to you is that <laughs> you shut down transit and all these people on the trains and on the buses end up um on the road with you right and the opposite if you can get more people to to get commute by um, public transportation walking biking they're not in your way when you're driving it'll make it a pleasure to drive again so um, there's no doubt that that's the case. The money part um, is understandable. They, the public doesn't get to spend them on the time that I get in reviewing these documents and following what the MBT and MassDOT are doing. And sort of you, you have to understand a good bit. When I started working at CLF, I didn't know all the details of what our history is in this. But our history is that we underspend for so long, um, not just on the T, but on the whole uh, – and not just on public transportation, the on the whole – transportation network that now all this is is catching up with us so we sort of underspend for a long time which means we'll have to overspend right now which will make it seem um, expensive and so what if you read and follow just the headlines in the media what you hear is that they're all corrupt and that they're wasting money and so you're not interested in spending more uh, because you you never see the benefits on the ground and what makes this even harder for example the red and orange line cars are going to make a real difference to people on those lines as a matter of fact during the um 
during the winter of 2015, the blue line was working much better, and I live on the blue line, was working much better than the orange and the red line because the vehicles were newer. We still have issues with the powers, power system and so on. And the signals. Signals. Yeah. But, but at least we had the newer vehicles, and that made a huge difference. And yeah. I had a friend on the orange line emailed me and said, you know, what's going on with your magical blue line? I didn't really have that big <laughs> of a problem. Newer. You know, it's just working. They don't right. have pantyhose on, right. uh, on the AC motors. <laughs> exactly. So, so you know, it's hard. So the red and orange line cars were already in procurement. They're going to be manufactured. It takes years before they go into service. 2017. So what happened... What happens is, in the meantime, you spend the money, you're spending the money, but you're not seeing any improvement on the ground, right? And so it takes a long time for that connection to happen. So it's it's hard for people who don't have the time to follow this every day to understand that an inv- investment will right. actually pay off. Because even when we're making an investment, it takes years for it to go right. into effect. And, you know, there are I, plenty of examples like that. I've though. been a champion of the MBTA uh, tooting its own, own horn in a in a more in a less PR way because uh, even even with uh, their new ve- ve- uh, vehicle recu- re- uh, excuse me with their new vehicle re- uh, procurement process that they're going uh, that they're doing in uh, San Francisco with BART uh, BART I think nationally has now been recognized as a as an agency that can speak honestly with its customers about its needs um, they they're they're always constantly talking about the new cars they just got unfortunately they they just got the new car and then and then in the weekend that they were testing that new car it it uh, ran into a sandbank well, that's um, a challenge right is that yeah. the procurement has to go well in order for you to you know toot your own horn about right, it so, right. without bringing up you know bad recent memories so right. you know I know I want to respect your time because I know we can't just stay here all night and have conversations but um, but Raphael, one of the things I think that I sometimes hear people say, uh, in transit circles especially, um, is because we all know about the huge role that CLF played um, in the 90s and then again um, in, was it 2005, I think, um, with, with mm-hmm. the lawsuits um, with the state uh, forcing these, these mitigations, these transit um, mitigations. And you mentioned there was numerous stuff. We, we think of this, the, the expansion right. ones, but so many things happen that we don't think about because they happened. What is it that CLF does other than these big lawsuits that we hear about? Because people think, oh, well, they're not doing anything recently because I haven't seen this big lawsuit, you know. So what else does um, does CLF do um, that we're not hearing about behind the scenes that's, I'm sure, like you're working every day, so I know well, you're doing I, I hope people don't think that, first of all, but uh, <laughs> because we, we have a huge presence in this area, obviously. Um, we I, I spend a lot of time analyzing, um, you know, sort of the budgets and, and what, the policies that are being implemented by MassDOT, by the T, by the regional transit authorities, and I follow it closely, and then uh, I, I share that information with people because I believe that if you have more information like that, you will will understand that our system needs more revenue, and you will understand that transportation is important, um, and um, we will get better policy. And so um, I use uh, my time, um, you know, to, to follow closely what the administration is doing, and then I, I analyze it, and, uh, and uh, with the help of, of the media, that word gets out. Um, I mean, there, there are many examples um, uh, of that, uh, including that, you know, the MBTA was, you know, when they were considering not putting in enough money for uh, replacing buses a few years ago, uh, we were able to shine a light on that. And uh, and the, the result was that there was more money put in and buses were purchased and we faced the same problem again, as we discussed. And um, and so there are many opportunities every week, unfortunately, with this 
this great focus on the MBTA right now to do that. But it goes beyond the T, and we haven't talked much about the rest of the state. I know your focus is the T, but it's uh, it, it's not different in other uh, places. In Springfield, for example, the Pioneer Valley Transit Authority um, has a maintenance facility that needs to be replaced. It's in terrible shape. Um, it doesn't. It isn't big enough to service the routes uh, that they currently have there and the employees um, that work there. And uh, they've spent almost eleven million dollars in order to get a construction ready. And it was supposed to start in in uh, next month in June. Um, and there is no money in the draft CIP to uh, do the construction. Not a single dollar right now. So they had to uh, they had to suspend and and wait and see if they can figure this out but th- this is a project that costs 71 million dollars and it's necessary and so these are the kind of things that we like to um, shine a light upon and hope that with more attention uh, it will become a priority and it won't be uh, neglected um and and once you combine all these different uh, examples from the state we're hoping that people will understand that we're going to need to invest more and that it isn't all made up so it sounds like just because it says Conservation Law Foundation doesn't mean that you're always just filing legal briefs and <laughs> suing people. Mm-hmm. And no, we a do a lot that. of good old-fashioned advocacy. Work. Yes, we do that. We do advocacy. We do policy analysis. We do economic analysis. We do whatever it takes in order to advance uh, um, the environmental, economic, and social justice interests uh, of the state and the region, all of New England. You know. Well, uh, thank you very much for for. Um, allowing us to to bring you in here and uh rake you over the coals here about these uh, about the clf and the work that you guys do um thank you very much to everyone listening if you're a redditor please subscribe to the mbta subreddit that's at mbt that's mbta.reddit.com post news and keep the conversation going about uh the clf and uh what we're doing here in the studio and what we're talking about here today you can follow me mark abunia at digital Guy. And you can follow me at Hatchback31. And I'm at Mixmaster Mully, M-U-L-L-Y. And I'm at Raphael Maris, too. Thank you for tuning in. And if you're watching on Facebook, tell us what you thought. Do you have a guest you'd like us to feature on this podcast? Some podcasting tips, constructive feedback, and compliments? Drop us an email, uh, feedback at transitmatters.info. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Google Play to catch this and other episodes. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook for updates. And visit our website, transitmatters.info, for more news. Subscribe for updates or learn about our volunteer opportunities. We hope you enjoyed, and uh, we hope that you'll listen again because Transit Matters.